Now, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, as we continue through this series in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your utmost attention. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen Herod said John I beheaded but who is this about whom I hear such things and he sought to see him Thus far, God's holy word. You may be seated. And let us ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Our most gracious heavenly father, we thank you uh, for your word that you have breathed out through the prophets and apostles of old. And we know, Lord, that you have sent to us Jesus Christ because of this word. We thank you for the proclamation of the kingdom that has gone forth everywhere. And we thank you that uh, we have heard this good news and that we have responded in faith and repentance. Lord, we pray that you will continually grow us by your word as it is preached this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In 1932, a notorious report titled Rethinking Missions was published. It was a massive reevaluation of world missions Funded by John D. Rockefeller Jr. The report argued for a new strategy for foreign missions. The church should no longer send out missionaries that would show the falseness of other religions and point people to the only way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Evangelism was not to be the motive for missions any longer. Rather, humanitarian services such as education 
and medicine would be the motive for missions. This, the report said, would Christianize people in a far better way than calling them to faith and repentance ever could. And the reason for this was because the authors of the report denied the exclusive nature of the Christian faith and favored an approach that acknowledged good in all religions. They did not believe that Christianity was distinct or hostile to other religions, but was the perfection of all universal religious outlooks. Now, this report may have been funded by John D. Rockefeller Jr., who had made public his antagonism toward historic Christianity. But this project was co-sponsored by representatives from seven major denominations. There were Congregationalists that were representatives there, Methodists, Episcopals, Northern Baptists, Protestant Episcopals, the Reformed Church in America, and even the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. How could denominations such as these even consider rethinking their missions in this fashion? Well, J. Gresham Machen knew why the church's view of missions had become so low. He wrote a lengthy pamphlet to the Board of Foreign Missions in the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, the PCUSA, claiming that the board was guilty of harboring liberals, liberalism. Two members of the Home Missions Board were representatives on the committee that wrote the Rethinking Missions Report. Machen claimed that this report was an attack upon historic Christianity, yet two of the members of his denomination's missions board helped to write the report. Machen could not believe that funds from Bible-believing Christians in his denomination were going to foreign missions that did not even evangelize. He made a recommendation through his presbytery to the General Assembly that year to instruct the board on foreign missions to do all that it could to ensure that sound missionaries and doctrine were characteristic of its activities. It unfortunately was to no avail. Liberalism had become too established in the PCUSA. A former student of Machen's spoke of that general assembly as rewriting Galatians 1 verse 8 to read, If any man preach another gospel, let him be supported. In reaction to all of this, Machen and a few other men organized the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions for the purpose of promoting truly biblical and Presbyterian mission work. 
This board was not to be a permanent board. It was a temporary effort to address the desperate state of missions in the church, and it would have dissolved once the official board had reformed. However, certain Presbyterian officials acted at the General Assembly against the independent board, claiming that it was in violation of the church's constitution. Eventually, Machen and his supporters were ordered to permanently suspend the independent board of foreign missions and to support the denomination's official board of foreign missions. Machen responded to that general assembly by saying, I am ordered by the general assembly to support the modernist, that is the liberal propaganda, which is being furthered by the official board of foreign missions. Being a Christian man, I cannot do so. Only 10 days after that general assembly, Machen and his supporters formed a new denomination known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And if you want to learn more about the, the founding and the formation of the OPC or, or to, to learn more about the events that transpired, uh, to which I'm referring to, uh, I recommend you pick up the book in our library, uh, Fighting the Good Fight. It's where I learned about the formation of the OPC and what I have told you here. But you can be assured that both doctrine and missions are extremely important to our denomination. Our text this morning tells us much about foreign missions and how the church should do missions to the world. It tells us about what the primary purpose of missions is. And so rather than rethinking missions this morning, we are going to remember what the Bible has already instructed about missions. And as we do so, we're going to look at this passage in four different sections. The first section, which covers verse 1, is the authority of the mission. The second section, covering verse 2, the purpose of the mission. The third section, verses 3 through 6, the instructions of the mission. And the final section, covering verses 7 through 9, the result of the mission. The authority, the purpose, the instructions, the result of the mission. Well, Jesus is finishing up his Galilean ministry. His ministry is now somewhere around 18 months old, which means that, that he's about halfway through his earthly ministry. Now that he was concluding his ministry in Galilee, he decides to send out his disciples on a massive sweep of the region so that he could spread the message of the coming kingdom as vastly and quickly as possible. So far in his ministry, he has been the only one doing ministry. He has been the one preaching and teaching. He has been the only one healing and casting out demons. All of the weight of the ministry thus far has been on Jesus. 
But before he turns his face to Jerusalem, as Luke will later tell us that he does, he wants to make one last push through Galilee. And in order to accomplish this, in the shortest amount of time possible, he must send the twelve out on this mission. And this mission is, is important, not just to spread the good news, but it's also important because it would advance the training of the apostles. If you remember back in chapter 6, Jesus had gone up onto the mountain and prayed all night to the Father. And when morning came, he came down and chose the twelve and named them apostles. Apostles which means sent ones. These 12 men received the office of apostle. And then he began what we called an internship, training them through teachings and healings. Well, it was time in their training to go out and to do some of the teaching and healings themselves. This was a crucial time in their training. They were to be go beyond the learning phase and begin to apply now what they had been learning. And this is actually very similar to the way we train men today in gospel ministry, or it should be. First, we examine their calling. And then we send them off to be trained, generally a seminary training where they do their learning. And the last step before they are are set loose is to do an internship where they begin to apply all the things that they have learned at seminary. This is where the apostles were in their calling. Someday they would be sent out to preach Christ crucified and raised to the whole world. But before then they needed to go out and intern. And so Jesus sent them out on a preaching and healing mission throughout Galilee. These 12 men were nobodies. They were everyday, ordinary men. Nothing special about any of them. And so how are they going to accomplish their duties? How are they going to be able to perform the duties that they were given? They did not have the authority to do these things on their own. Where would the authority come from? Well, verse 1 tells us. We see that the authority came from Christ. He gave them power and authority to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Christ was the authoritative one. He had power and authority to preach and to heal on his own heavenly mission that the Father had sent him on. And now he was authorizing the twelve to continue this mission as his Galilean ministry concluded. Well, today we see that things have not changed too much. Christ is still the authoritative one who calls and sends his ministers. We may not have the office of apostle today, for it died off with these 12 men. They were the, the foundation of the church. But Jesus still calls and sends out his representatives. 
Christ is the king of the church. He rules the church today. And he continues his mission through the church. Of course, this applies directly to those who are called and ordained to serve in Christ's church. But this applies to all of you. Because we are all called to share the good news of the kingdom. We have all been given the great commission. The church as a whole has been called, commissioned, and sent by Christ, the authoritative one, to preach the apostolic message of Christ crucified and raised. On our own, we could not accomplish this. We are everyday Ordinary people who could never accomplish such a heavenly, supernatural mission on our own. But the authority for the mission that we have comes from Christ. And so we can be sure that the mission will be accomplished. Christ is the authority for this mission. So what then is the purpose of the mission? Christ is the authority, but what is the mission's purpose? Well, we've already mentioned it, but verse 2 tells us specifically. It says, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. As we look at this verse, we see that there is a twofold mission, a twofold purpose to the mission. But the primary purpose was to proclaim the kingdom of God. To proclaim the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is wherever the reign and rule of God extends. And with the coming of the king of kings, the reign and rule of God was being ushered in. That is what the apostles were sent out to proclaim. It was the good news of the kingdom. In fact, notice that Luke uses the word kingdom and gospel interchangeably. In verse 2, the apostles proclaimed the kingdom and healed. In verse 6, they preached the gospel and healed. It was the good news of the coming of the kingdom. That they preached. And it was the good news of the coming of the kingdom because with it came the king who would overthrow the ruler of this world. Jesus spoke of Satan being overthrown in John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. He said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Of course, God always rules over Satan. But he had allowed Satan to rule over the world since the fall of man. Satan held people in bondage through their sin. However, a new reign and rule was coming. A new ruler was coming. 
those who were being oppressed by Satan would be freed from their bondage. Jesus had come to set captives free and to forgive their sins. That is the good news that the apostles were sent out to proclaim. The very word in Greek that has been translated here, to proclaim, actually has royal connotations. The word originally has the meaning of a herald going out to announce the arrival of the king. You see, the apostles were the heralds of Christ, announcing his coming reign and rule. In this sense, they were Christ's ambassadors speaking on behalf of the king. And again, we we see the authority with which they were sent. They were not speaking from their own authority, but by the authority of the king. They were not to draw attention to themselves, but to the king. And this truth extends to the secondary purpose of their mission as well. See, the miracles performed by the apostles were not to bring a spotlight upon them. It was to bring credibility to what they were proclaiming. If your message is one that says the king has arrived, then what better way to prove your claim than to cast out the enemies of that kingdom? You need proof that the kingdom has come. Then see how the enemy's slaves are set free from being under his bondage. The casting out of demons brought credibility to their claim. And so too did their healings. Disease is a result of man's fall into sin. Under the reign of Christ, sin and all of its effects were going to be wiped away. The casting out of demons and the healings were signs that this would one day be the case. Of course, the book of Revelation tells us that this will finally take place when Christ returns and consummates his kingdom. And so there is an already and a not yet aspect to the coming of the kingdom. It has come. It has been inaugurated. But it has not yet come in full. It has not yet been consummated. Satan, sin, and all of its effects will not be fully done away with until the return of Christ. But we can be assured that the reigning power of sin and Satan has been defeated by the work of Christ. And so these miracles testify to the claims of the apostles. How are people to be assured of the validity of the apostles' claims? They were to be assured by virtue of the miracles. We have to remember that they did not have completed revelation the way that we do today. They did not have the finished word of God by which to affirm their message. Today we do. How do we know if one's message today is true? We check it up against scripture. We don't need someone to perform a miracle today to attest that what he speaks is the truth. 
We just check what he says against the standard of the completed revelation of God, against the Bible. In their day, this was impossible. They were making a claim that the kingdom had come, that the king was present. How were they to affirm this message? Well, they did so by their miracles. And so we see then why the miracles were the secondary purpose of the mission. Because they were subservient to the primary purpose. The preaching of the gospel. The mission of the church is the same today as it was for the apostles back then. We are to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And just as the apostles proclaimed the kingdom in word, the proclamation of the kingdom, and indeed the miracles, so we too are to proclaim it in word and deed. We don't miraculously cure sickness and cast out demons, but we do take care of the sick, feed the hungry, clothe the poor, visit prisoners. This is the healing ministry of the church today. When we care for the physical needs of others, the truth of our message is confirmed. We do not need the miraculous today because we have completed revelation. But sometimes people are not ready to hear the truth that we proclaim until they know that we care. I think this is another reason why Jesus sent his apostles to cure diseases and to heal people. The miracles were miracles of compassion. He could have given them power and authority to do miracles over nature or, or anything else. But to heal the sick and to cast out demons is to show compassion for those who are hurting. But the primary purpose of the mission must always be centered on that which brings eternal healing. And that comes through the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the gospel. J. Gresham Machen demonstrated this for us, I think, in the illustration that we looked at earlier. And we need to remember this in our outreach efforts here in Amarillo. And as we support our foreign missionaries in our denomination, you see, we need to proclaim the kingdom in word and deed. The latter to promote the former. The purpose of the apostles' mission was therefore made clear to them. They were sent to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. But how were they to carry out the purpose of this mission? They had a lot of ground to cover and a big task at hand. How were they going to accomplish it? Well, Jesus gave them a set of instructions. In the first part of those instructions, he said, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Now, these instructions, 
the full set of instructions, which we'll look at the, the second half of them in a moment. But, but altogether, these instructions accomplish two things. This first set of instructions here calls for the apostles to trust in God to take care of them. At this phase of their training, in their internship, they were to learn to depend upon their heavenly father. They were to take nothing on their journey. Essentially, the clothes on their backs was to be the only thing that they were to take. In every way, they were to depend upon the Lord for their care. They were not to have a bag, that is a knapsack, which was used to carry provisions. Why? Because they would not need those provisions. They were not to take bread. God would give them their daily bread by those who housed them in each town. They were not to take money. God would give them all that they would need. And they were not to take two tunics. That is, literally, they were to take only the shirt on their back. When someone in a town opened their house to them, they were to remain in that house. They were not to go from house to house looking for better lodging than what they were first offered. They were to remain in the first house offered to them. That housing would be sufficient for their needs. And from that home, God would care for their needs. They needed to know that as God's apostles, as his sent ones, as his ambassadors, he would take care of them. And we too need to realize that God will provide all that we need in ministry. When God calls us to our vocations... When he asks us to serve in the church, he provides for us and equips us with all that we need. We will have no want for that which is needed to accomplish what he has called us to. Were the apostles taken care of? Well, let's see. Turn a few chapters ahead in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 Verse 35, Jesus is is speaking to the disciples. He's speaking about this mission that he sent them on in our passage. Luke 22, verse 35 says, And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. They lacked nothing. God always takes care of those who he sends out. Keep your finger on that passage. We'll look at it again in just a moment. But the apostles needed to learn this during their internship. And we need to learn this as well. That God will take care of us. He will provide all that we need for the ministry that he has called us to. When he sends... He will provide. Now, does this mean that we should never plan ahead or take provisions with us in our ministries? No. Look at the next verse in Luke 22. He goes on to tell them in verse 36. But now 
Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. In essence, Jesus is asking them, Have you learned to depend upon God? You have? Okay, great. Go ahead and take then a money bag and a knapsack and buy a sword. The point is not to never make plans or take provisions. The point is to trust in God. He will care for us and take care of all of our needs for whatever he calls us to. And so the first thing that these instructions taught them was that they were not to depend upon themselves, but upon God. But the second thing it taught them is that God would take care of them in the midst of opposition. Just because God cares for all of your needs does not mean that it's always going to be easy. As he continues the set of instructions, he says, And wherever they do not receive you, When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Not everyone was going to receive them. And remember, to not receive the ambassador was to not receive the one who sent them. Some houses and some cities may have rejected the apostles, but it was the Lord, ultimately, that they were rejecting. Beloved, you will be rejected by some. Some do not want the salvation that you proclaim. Why? Because they are offended that the message you proclaim tells them that they are sinners. But this is a part of the message that we must proclaim. There is no good news of the kingdom to proclaim if our message is devoid of repentance. In Mark's account of this passage, we read, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That is what must be proclaimed. Faith and repentance. People must recognize their need for a Savior. Sinners need a Savior. And they must turn from their sin and unto Christ. For he has the power and authority to release them from their bondage to sin and Satan. And to transfer them into his marvelous kingdom. When Machen was fighting for missions, he was simply asking that missions be done the way Jesus prescribes in Luke 9, 1 through 9. The gospel needs to be preached. And when the gospel is preached, there will be opposition. And it's easy to take it personal when you're rejected for your faith. But instead, we should rejoice as the apostles did in Acts 5 when they were counted worthy of suffering shame for his name. 
Don't feel bad for yourself. Feel bad for the one who rejected you and your message. For judgment will come upon such people. That is what the act of shaking off the dust on their feet meant. Jesus said that it was done as a testimony against them. Leon Morris speaks directly to this in his commentary, and he says, There was a rabbinic idea that the dust of Gentile lands carried defilement, and strict Jews are said to have removed it from their shoes whenever they returned to Palestine from abroad. The disciples shaking off the dust from their feet was a testimony against them. It declared in symbol that the Israelites who rejected the kingdom were no better than Gentiles. They did not belong to the people of God, end quote. Now this part of the passage, this section, concludes that they went out and they were preaching the gospel and healing. And we can be certain that God cared for their needs wherever they were received and wherever they were rejected. And this brings us to our final section, the mission's result. Luke reveals to us at least one result or response to this mission. He said, because of the vast sweep of the gospel by the apostles, Jesus had become the talk of the Galilean region. Some were saying that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some said he was Elijah. Some said that he was another one of the prophets. Obviously, not everyone understood exactly who he was. But the apostles' mission certainly created talk and interest in Jesus. Some received the apostles' message. Some rejected. But then there were others who were interested. These are always the responses. You see the same thing with with Paul at the Areopagus. Some reject, some receive, some are interested and want to discuss more. Our text tells us that even Herod the Tetrarch developed an interest in Jesus. Herod was a king, so naturally he would be interested in heralds going out to proclaim a coming king and kingdom. Luke says that Herod sought to see him. Perhaps he was simply afraid that that Jesus was John the Baptist returned from the dead to haunt him. We learn from this passage that Herod had finally beheaded John the Baptist. But the point here is that he inquired. Later in this gospel, we discover that Herod never came to profess faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, he helps to torture Jesus just after his arrest. But we must learn from this that some will receive our message, others will reject, while others will want to inquire more. And we must learn to discern who we need to dust off the shoes on our feet and move on from, and who we should spend a little more time with sharing the gospel. Inquiring is not enough to get you into heaven. We must go on to faith. But who should we dust off the shoes of our feet from and move on? And who should we spend more time with? Well, this discernment is not really all that difficult very often. Most of the time, the 
person will make it very obvious by completely, completely shutting down the conversation. And so you pray that the Lord will make their hearts more susceptible to hearing the gospel. But you go on to spend your efforts where the ground is more fertile. Beloved, our Savior, our King and Creator, came and accomplished salvation for His people. He redeemed a people to Himself by purchasing them with His priceless blood. And that is why He came. That is what next week is all about. Christmas is not just about the birth. It is about why He was born. And He was born to accomplish redemption. And this redemption is applied to more and more people every time the kingdom is preached and the gospel is received. The apostles were sent out on this mission and later to the whole world to spread this good news. They are the foundation of the church. But though they are gone, God is still sending his people to go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. We have that very opportunity this Christmas season. Our hymn of response this evening demands that we go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere that Jesus Christ was born. Why are we to go out and proclaim his birth? I love the third verse of this hymn because it makes it very clear. Down in a lowly manger our humble Christ was born. And God sent us salvation that blessed Christmas morn. He had come to accomplish salvation from sin and Satan. And that is what biblical missions proclaims. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Servants like J. Gresham Machen who wanted to bring reform to a church that was going apostate but who realized that at a certain point it was time to dust the shoes off of his feet and move on. And we thank you for our denomination uh, that we have, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And we pray, Lord, that you will keep her faithful in our doctrine in our message. We pray, Lord, that you will help each one of us to do the very same. Help us to realize that, that uh, though uh, the official office of apostle of sent ones is, is no more, it died with the apostles. Help us to realize that, uh, that we are apostles in the lowercase sense. We are sent ones. You send us to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. We pray that you will have us ready at every moment to do that as we uh, live our daily lives. And may we also do that not only in word, but also in deed. We think about that specifically at this time of year during the Christmas season. 
which is very difficult on, on many others. May we use this season as an opportunity to show compassion to others and to share your good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us respond to the preaching.